Hello and welcome to Angel's Costumes Behind the Scenes. I'm Jeremy Angel. I'm Richard Green. And I'm Jonathan Lippman. And I'm thrilled that we have Sinead Cadal on our podcast this week. She's a really exciting young designer who has done her time, if that's the right expression, with big designers, Jacqueline Durham, Lindy Hemming, and learned the ropes by assisting and being around and working very hard. And I've, I've watched her from a little fledgling and now she is uh, currently <laughs> designing her first major television. Her feathers. Fluffing her feathers. <laughs> Spreading her wings. And um, she spread her wings. She's off. And, yeah, she and is. Doing very well. And it's been a pleasure to work with her in her capacity as designer on, on a big period drama. And I, what an amazing, I mean, we talk about the various ways people come to this this business and, you know, various approaches but but actually actually being being in a village where they're filming on location there's got to be a first hasn't it it's like a scene out of ryan's daughter (laughs) (laughs) could could you imagine that happening now for a fitting that someone had a fitting here and they turned up with five of their grandchildren to the fitting because they 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 just that's what they wanted to do well for a start they wouldn't get in (laughs) not now but you you know (laughs) it's it's amazing absolutely amazing and completely the right designer to do it for because lindy lindy loves those sorts of stories yes oh yeah and and embraced by Mm. her and then and then you know years on and time and circumstance and Sinead's in london and i think i think it's nice when when you get that serendipitous yeah, it's, it's a lovely story. It's a really nice story. It's also the the, the thing that you're talking about, um, spreading her wings, Jonathan, and uh, sort of cutting her teeth with big designers on other productions. If you look at the production she worked on to, to do all of that, it was a complete mix. She had your big blockbusters in The Wonder Womans and uh, Little Women, but she also then did did some smaller productions as well with those people. So she got a really good feel for it at that at the real pointed edge of the point the, the, the pointy bit of the wedge i suppose because the, the pointy end of the stick yes I, I, the pointy end of the stick what i what i particularly noticed about Sinead over the years is that it's what she doesn't say she's not mm. she's not the sort of designer that has uh, verbosity or pomposity it's it's very considered and thoughtful and i think her process learning as a as an assistant was absolutely key to the situation that she's in now. And, you know, what often happens is that it's sort of, I don't, I I suppose this is, the expression I want to use is, is crumbs from a table, but what, what, by, by, by developing a good, strong, solid relationship with a costume designer, they'll, there will be a point if that collaboration is working in the right way where Jacqueline or Lindy will be approached, as an example of a designer, will be approached to do a job that they can't do for whatever reason. And they'll say, and this is this is the ideal scenario, and, and it happened to me, they'll say, happened, I can't do it, but... but <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And, and then that gives someone like Sinead the opportunity to fly. And mm, they've, been, they've been empowered by by their designer because they've learned they've learned their craft and then off they go and that's that's a wonderful process well and that's and that's the way it should be isn't it i mean you know you learn, and again we keep banging on about this but you know this isn't or shouldn't be a 5 minute cinderella transformation moment this is people learning no. their craft putting in their hours putting in the time putting in the work making 
in fact, these the contacts and, and networking to a certain extent, but not in that kind mm-hmm. of aggressive way that, that we've all experienced where, you know, somebody's right in your face about, about things. Well, the, the, the dialogue that, that Sinead undertook with me in terms of her preparation for this current project that she's working on and, and throughout the process has, is completely and utterly the conversation that you that that she's learned from working with the people that she's worked with yeah so yeah and and you know i i i respect that i think that's i think that's incredibly important and mm. uh, i hope it i hope she goes far with it and the other thing with the whole scenario you just explained which is with your the, the, the crumbs the table thing is on top of all of that the as you've explained with your side of things uh, when we did your interview jonathan is it's a huge vote of, from the production's point of view. If the designer says, I know you want me, but the next best person to me is X. So you've mm-hmm. got the whole, you don't need to jump too far away from me. But the second thing is it's a massive vote of confidence for Sinead that she knows she was put forward by whether oh, it's Jacqueline. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it, it's, it works so many ways. So it's lovely. And uh, just looking through Sinead's career and what she's worked on and, um, I mentioned this earlier on today to Richard. When you start looking at, for example, Black Mirror seems to be becoming a very good place for costume designers who are sort of, it's a really good place to go. If you look at all the other designers who've done Black Mirror, Jacqueline Durren's done one, and Guy Speranza, Jane Petrie, Ed yeah. Gibbons, Claire Anderson, Natalie Ward. You've got all these designers at Verity Hawks, Barbara Kidd and Sinead. And it's not a bad thing to have on your CV. And it's it seems to be a very good uh, production to be well the quality the, the production values of that of that um series series <clears throat> is high and they they've considered the the creatives that they bring in you know they've made that a very important factor in in the presentation right, and definitely. as standalone stories it's a perfect it's a perfect little exercise isn't it no, it's great. It's great, and it was it was generally only suddenly looking through all the designers that they've been on there, and you're like, that's actually a fantastic group to be to be part of. So, um, if I'm not yeah. mistaken, I think Guy Speranza's one was directed by Jodie Foster. I know Guy did three. I think uh, one of them was. Yeah. And, I, and I, you know, what an amazing environment to be mm. in, working with somebody of her experience and mm. and I to come to come within that orbit, and for him to present his work on, on on that platform is is great so yeah i, I agree with you mm. we we hope you've been enjoying these conversations we've certainly been enjoying your feedback if you have any questions or queries please do contact us on podcast at angels.co.uk you can visit our website which is www.angelsbehindthescenes.com or you can find us on social media we are on instagram twitter and facebook we are forward slash costume podcast And here is Jonathan's chat with Sinead. Here we are today on a rather gloomy grey Monday, but we will be enlightened and brightened by Sinead Kiddow. Pronounce your last name for me. Kiddow. Kiddow. Kiddow, yeah. I always say it's like pow, but like Kiddow, you know, like in a Batman. I quite like pow. (laughs) Kiddow. No, that's great. So... That's clarified that one up because I've always questioned that one. Uh, welcome, Sinead, and I'm very pleased very to have this opportunity to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. And I think it's very exciting because, you know, you're on a bit of a crossroads threshold in terms of your career. 
and what you've been building up to for the last number of years and what you've actually achieved yourself as a designer in the last should I say a year with yeah. you know, Steve McQueen and, and now what you're about to embark upon? Yeah, it's about a year. It's a year since I've been designing on my own. And I think that's testament to your temerity and your skill and your observation. Would you agree with that? <laughs> that's a very nice thing to say. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 been kind of nerve wracking of a year and it's sort of that thing of going out on your own is always quite daunting. But yeah, I've, I've enjoyed it so far. So fingers crossed. You you look like you enjoy it because <laughs> I've been watching you over the, especially over the last year. And, you know, the the work that's been coming through and the, the projects that you've undertaken as an assistant. And then, and then, of course, the small work that you've done in order to kind of flex your muscles and get into the vibe of, of designing under your own auspices has has been an, an interesting journey and, and and in terms of how we're structuring these conversations i'd like to take our audience and you back to the back to the beginning and ask you what what was your introduction to the industry where did you where did you first know about the concept of costume design and that there could be a possible job that realized that you know that artistic yeah. ambition well funny enough the first time i ever knew of costume as an idea was when i was about seven and a, a film called all things bright and beautiful was being filmed in the town where my grandparents lived and um, they went up to they got an audition to be extras and then they got the part and when they went for their fitting they decided to bring myself and about six of my cousins along <laughs> <laughs> to their costume fitting which when I think about it now if anyone turned up for a costume fitting and they brought like six of their grandchildren with them you just think they were so mad but um we were all so excited and uh and there was a marquee and we thought the marquee was so fancy and then my auntie came along for their next costume fitting and she decided to get a job in the costume department I don't think they paid her but um it was Lindy Hemming was the the costume designer and my grandparents were saying, oh, we've got loads of 1950s clothes at home, you know. So Lindy came up to the house and took a lot of the costumes, well, clothes that my grandparents had in the attic and actually ended up using them. And then wow. afterwards, um, yeah, it's just like such a small world. But afterwards, actually, Lindy sent the costumes back in angels bags. And I remember being, because I was about seven or eight, looking at these bags and thinking, oh, my God, where is this mystical, magical place called Angels? And I, and I actually kind of forgot about that. But then I, I was always interested in fashion and drawing. And I went to Trinity and studied. I just randomly chose to study drama and French, but then started working in the, on the plays that were in the Drama Society. And I got a job as a dresser in Smock Alley Theatre. And... One of our lecturers there actually recommended that I apply to go to RADA and do the theatre costume course that they had there. So I applied and got in. And it was only actually at my my graduation there and my auntie came over to see it and she said, oh, my God, you're going to be just like Lindy. And when we'd been at when we'd been at RADA, they'd spoken about Lindy Hemming, who had gone to RADA and who'd been, a, you know, an Oscar winning costume designer. And it was only at the graduation that I actually put two and two together that she'd been the costume designer who'd been in our house, who'd kind of borrowed all those clothes. And then just just by chance through then going on to work with Jacqueline 
I then went on to actually assist Lindy. So it was like a really weird, uh, small, small world. Um, circles within circles and 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 it is a small world because you know as as information has evolved through these chats that we've been having with you know all different practitioners the 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 serendipity and the coincidence Mm. of how people evolve to find the positions that they find themselves in is sort of intriguing so so when you when that connection was made at, at, at the point of your graduation and you'd, you'd gone through your, if you like, your academic training and you then decided that you were going to forge ahead and make a career of this. Was that, was that all based on being in London or had you, got, had you gone home by then? No, so I, well, I went, to, I went to London primarily to study, but that was around the time when I graduated was was when the big recession hit and there weren't as many opportunities in Ireland at that time, but there were a lot more in London. And so I decided to stay in London, but also but my, I'd primarily wanted to work in, in theatre and I didn't really know a huge amount about film because RADA doesn't really focus no, that much on film. It's, it's very much um, theatre based, but I think yeah. in a way actually you get, you get a really good training because you do you learn a lot of practical skills. It's very vocational. You're working on all the shows there. You're meeting lots of different people. You're kind of coming up with different actors and designers at the same time. And just by chance, when I'd been at Trinity, my, my dissertation had been on the semiotics of costume. And I'd studied Mike Lee. And he then went and did a talk at, at RADA. And he after I asked him a question at the talk. And afterwards, I, I met him. And he said, oh, you know what? why don't you get in touch with my costume designer, which was Jacqueline Dern. Mm-hmm. And I sent her an email and I was sort of economical with the truth of <laughs> how well I knew uh, Mike Lee. And so mm-hmm. he said, oh, come in and meet us. And so I'd never really kind of thought about film that much, but only for going in to meet Jacqueline and then her giving me a job. I then suddenly was working in film and I actually haven't gone back to theatre since. That's over ten years ago now. And your 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 first job in in her department was as what? So as a trainee. Right. So she brought me on. And actually, she brought me on as work experience, on the proviso because she thought I knew Mike. <laughs> so she was like, "Oh, we'll we'll have to give her some sort of job." And um, mm. then after a week or two, she said, "Oh, we need to get you a paid job." And so they gave me a job as a paid trainee, and then. Yeah, then I've just pretty much been working with her since. And was that on Happy Go Lucky? No, it was it was called a running jump. It was like a short film he did. Uh-huh. I think it was two thousand and eight. And yeah, so it was it was a short film. So it was only kind of I think six weeks we worked on it for. And and how how during that time were you making ends meet? So I mean, I'm incredibly lucky that when I went to university, university was free. So when I came over to London I got a I got a I got a grant. And then it was only about three weeks of work that I had to work as a as work experience. And that was literally just as I finished at RADA mm-hmm. um, and then got went on and got paid work, which I think is the brilliant thing about um, film is that people tend not to keep you on work experience in the way that they make you, you know, do it in, in fashion design, I guess, in um, in film and TV. You know, you can get a job as a paid trainee and work your way up from there. So. Yeah, that's how I made it ends meet in the beginning. And, you know, that that takes a certain amount of skill and sort of uh, temerity because you, you it, it's it's not, you know, you, you have alluded to sort of various 
coincidences and mm -hmm. then you have the opportunity to prove your worth within the within the department but to maintain that and sustain it is is not an easy task you've got to you've got to be prepared to you know work all hours and and watch and be aware of everything that's going on around you yeah i think i think one thing i always say is that it's really in our industry various people get their first job in various ways um but how you get your second job is really just by working hard because mm -hmm. people may give you a chance or you may write an email at the right time and someone be willing to give you a job but they will never bring you on into another job unless you work really hard so mm. i think that's the one thing I've always thought about this is you have to really love it and you have to be willing to work all hours of the day and because you love it and then and in a way that's what theatre teaches you because when we were at RADA and when we were working on plays you're just you're working all hours of the day just to get something done mm. and so then going into working in, in film was very similar in a way but at least in film we were getting paid which uh and that stamina and endurance has a remunerative value mm. which perhaps in theatre is is harder to quantify because the structure of pay and and the conditions are so different so in in a in a sense you jumped into a an opportunity and created a situation for yourself which a lot of people spend many many years trying to work out a way of accessing it and it is about the foot in the door, isn't it? And then it's down to you to prove your, you know, your your worth. What was the next job then that Jacqueline took you on to? I think it might have been Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. I did one of the Batman films as a trainee right. in between. So after we did the Mike Lee, I think Jacqueline put me forward to go. And then, so that was with Lindy designing and Dan Gray supervising. And so I was on that for nearly a year as a trainee and then halfway through became a buyer. And then I think I went to work with Jacqueline on Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy after that. I presume you had the opportunity to tell Lindy the story. Yeah, I did. Connection. Yeah, because I even have, I, my aunt still has handwritten letters. I mean, it meant so much to my grandparents and my aunt at the time. It was like the most exciting thing that had happened in, a, in our town. And they just loved the whole experience. So my aunt still has letters that Lindy sent her saying thank you afterwards and kind of keeping in touch for a few years oh, after. And, 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 and Lindy is such a generous person in, mm -hmm. in that respect to, to sort of draw, you know, knowing that somebody's interested and then to draw them into the world is, is very much how uh, she operates. So I'm, I'm really yeah. pleased about that. Nice story. Lindy always says, and, and Lindy's partner, Bob, they're like, of course we remember you. <laughs> I think a random seven-year-old, but uh, no, it's quite funny. Well, you know, you, you never know. You may have you may have made some indelible print into their into their memory, and 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 away you go. the The interesting thing about what you said in terms of how one has to keep going is that I always associate the best of times with with this work that we do as being in the summer, the longest days, and um, in fact, you know, your your working relationship with Jacqueline sort of slight just before you came along Jacqueline and I used to have a working relationship together because she was employed by angels before mm -hmm. she you know left to do her MA and then freelance and um, one of the one of the things that I remember most about that time when we were working together were 
these very, very long days that we used to have working at Shaftesbury Avenue in, in the summer and leaving invariably sort of between nine and 10 o'clock at night and just not knowing where the hours had gone. Mm. And because you're so absorbed in, in the project that you are working on, whatever it might be. And I think that it's an interesting character attribute for, for all designers that, you be, that your passion for the project becomes all-consuming yeah. and that's how you are able to invariably produce your best work. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't know how to work for just eight hours a day. And I know that sounds, there is a, there is a certain aspect where, you know, in our job, I think people, people should go home and people shouldn't work any longer than they need to. But as a designer, particularly as I've been in the last year, you know, there's just always more things you can read. There's almost more things you can look up. There's always, you just always feel like you could do more. And mm. But it's so rewarding when you actually do really enjoy your job that you don't mm. mind doing it. I mean, there's no switch off, is there? No, there isn't. And but I'd rather be doing something that I love for 16 hours a day than something that I hate for for half of that. <laughs> so absolutely, yeah. And and just bringing just bringing our audience like up to date now, bearing in mind the circumstances that we're currently in with shutdown and confusion, you're about to restart on a rather marvellous project, The Pursuit of Love. And that's a BBC production? Yeah, it's a BBC, so three three parters, so three episodes, um, based on Nancy Mitford's The Pursuit of Love. So yeah, it's a really lovely, it's like a gift of a job into, from a design point of view, because it's 1920s, 1930s, going into the early 40s. So it's just that lovely period to do. And yeah, we were two weeks away from filming when, when lockdown happened. And it was so many beautiful dresses sitting in your workroom, just hoping that it would come back. And now it has. So, yeah, it'll be a very, very different set than we were originally imagining. But um, I'm so glad that it will actually come about now. And who, who's adapted that for the for screen? So it's Emily Mortimer's directorial debut. So she's adapted it for the screen and she's directing it, which is lovely. And is that a project that has long gestated with her and, and it's like a, a, a passion project? Um, I think so, yeah. I don't think she had originally planned to direct it, but now she's... Yeah, I, I think it's been a couple of years that she's been thinking about it and adapted it and then they've got a great production team behind it to make it. Are they people that you've worked with before? No. So it's Moonage Pictures and no one on it actually I've worked with before, so it's a whole new team. Which is even even my costume team are a whole new team because we're filming it outside of London. And so it's the first time I've actually been on a job that I've known no one <laughs> from the beginning, which is funny when you're the designer. But um, obviously, having worked with Jacqueline for so long and we had, you know, that team. And one of the saddest things I think about now is about being a designer is that often, you know, I can't work with Jacqueline anymore. And, and have to find a new team and a new assistant and supervisor but I'm really lucky actually with everyone it's probably the nicest group of people um, across the board from from the producers to the director to you know the the DP everyone is just so enthusiastic about the project really wants to make it happen and our own team we've got together are just brilliant so I'm very optimistic about it everything's in alignment just <laughs> talk talk us through how how that process of you if you like being confirmed on the job was it was it an, an availability check or was it a, a recommendation how how do you know how 
you were asked to come to the table in order to discuss taking on the role? So I signed with an agent last year and they put me forward for it. And so I went in and interviewed and had to do, you know, presentation and mood boards and read the script in advance and then and went in and met with them. And then, yeah, found out I got the job. So, yeah, it's, it, that's been a whole part of it, of being a designer now, that I have to be the one to go in and pitch for something, which I haven't had to do in the past. So mm. that's a new skill set. But this was one, I think sometimes you read something and you know, if if you know it's something you really want to watch <laughs> yourself. Yeah. And then you, like going in and meeting Emily and I responded immediately. I just, she's so enthusiastic and her ideas are brilliant. And I felt like it was something I, I could do and I really wanted to do. Um, so I was so excited when I found out I got it. Well, you know, congratulations, obviously. Oh, but I think I haven't, to, I haven't actually done it yet, though. So that's the... well, I. But it. But you know, this 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 part of the process, which is the corralling of of information and combined with your research and your input, is is in my opinion is probably one of the best elements of the job because you're you're working under your own auspices and collaborating with your teams as well as the, the the production team and when when you feel that you're on a journey and and everything's kind of ticking you know you're you're ticking boxes but you're also meeting the criteria and progressing i think that's just so exciting and yeah no it's it's wonderful and it's a fantastic opportunity to be doing it on a project that that ultimately now with everything that's been going on will be very contained and very secure mm, yeah it's it's interesting i mean it's it's quite daunting and a project like this was sort of daunting in the beginning but now we have to just think about it in a, in a different way but mm. i'm getting more and more excited about things coming out because until you see it as you know the finished product it's trying to figure out oh did i do a good job you know did it look good? Did I make the right choice here and here? And when you're an assistant designer, that's, you know, that's not on you in the same way it is as a designer. So absolutely, um, yeah, the, the the burden the burden of responsibility is on your shoulders, yeah. and your and your team will will need you to 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 lead them in that way. Mm, yeah, I was. Someone asked me recently about about the difference between you know being an assistant designer and being a designer. And I was saying, on one hand, you know, you haven't got that re- responsibility. But on the other hand, having been an assistant designer for so long, you you get to know, you know, I feel like I, I know Jacqueline's taste really well. And but also you're kind of making decisions with someone else's taste in mind and, and viewpoint in mind and what you think they'll like and what you think they might not like. So you have to really kind of recalibrate your brain in a way. But also sometimes it is nice to think, oh, God, you know, I have this is my kind of final say here so I can decide yes or no and not kind of have to worry about whether or not that's been you know that's the right choice or or the wrong choice in a sense Um, yeah so yeah it's definitely a different way of thinking and your choice and artistic decisions are, are you know at the point that you're at are so governed by your relationship with your collaborators Mm. and and your own and your own efforts it's kind of do or die isn't it because you can't rely on anyone else to come forward with whether it's a color palette or a shape and working with performers 
and trying to get and trying to mold them into your understanding of the narrative is you know the onus the onus is on you and that's the a world away from being uh, an assistant or any other member of the costume yeah. team yeah it's a it's a very different kind of it's a different skill set in a way but what i what i'm so grateful for is to have had the opportunity to assist to work with someone like Jacqueline you know for the last 10 years and to to assist Lindy and obviously Jacqueline assisted Lindy and I've worked with Guy Sprands as well and he has assisted Lindy so they all have a a similar sort of approach to costume design in a way but they're incredibly talented and it's great to have been able to watch them in fittings and watch how they watch how they work and how they they collaborate with directors and, and actors and, and everyone and, and learn from them and then see, because I couldn't imagine doing this, just kind of, you know, I think sometimes people rock up and they think, oh, I'm, I'm a costume designer and you can just call yourself a costume designer. Um, mm. But I think actually having that experience of working on massive films, working on small films, doing all of those kind of things as an assistant designer, you learn so much by just being in those rooms without necessarily being the one in charge in those rooms. So yeah, that's, I couldn't imagine being in this position if I hadn't have had that those 10 years as an assistant designer. Well, the key word you just used was watching mm. and, and then having the curiosity. Have you, have you worked in general wardrobe? Have you, have you gone into just crowd dressing and standing by? Are those, are those roles that that were offered to you or I did work actually Jacqueline was the one who said to me you know you need to go and do a couple of jobs as a standby because it's so important to understand how things work on set and mm. and that pressure and that standbys get put under and the level of responsibility a standby has because I think as with anything you need to know what you're asking your team to do and it's really important to get that experience and so I did I did a couple of jobs as a standby but I have to admit I wasn't very good <laughs> So yeah, I was quite key. I found the being on a set floor very stressful for a long amount of time. But yeah, so I have done a couple of jobs as standby and I've done yeah, a fair amount of crowd dressing. Um just in between jobs, it's all quite nice to go in and do crowd fittings. And I love doing crowd fittings, actually, I have to say. Well that, that's the formulation of the look, isn't it? In mm. terms of Yeah, and when you're an assistant designer and again it's quite full on and you've got a lot of responsibility and it's nice then when you finish a job and you can go in and as a daily and maybe do crowd fittings for a week or two on someone else's job and you get given a brief and then you get to work on it. And it's quite, it's just a really enjoyable experience, I find, doing crowd fittings. But um, yeah, so I have had that experience, but mainly I've been assistant designing. When you've been brought in to do a block of crowd, is that is that costumes that are presented to you and then you uh, allocate them to performers that come in on that day or are they is it for, does it is it more extensive than that do you source those costumes and then hand them in and then work with them to prepare for the scene so for me personally if I've gone in on a job I've tended to go in as a daily and I've just kind of gone into the crowd fitting room and worked with the other crowd fitters um, so you'll have a pool of stock that then you pull from depending on the, the the supporting artist that comes in as an assistant designer you'll often then so on certain jobs you might have two or three assistant designers so one person might be looking after principal women one person might be looking after principal men and then the third assistant designer might be looking after crowd so they would be working with with the crowd team and pulling the crowd costumes and getting that stock together 
So on smaller jobs, if you're the assistant designer, you might be doing kind of all three of those roles. So you might be the one to pull the crowd stock as well as doing the principal stock and you'll you'll kind of have a, a pool of stock together, but then you will get different people to come in and actually do those fittings. Or maybe on a, on a smaller job, you just might do the crowd fittings and you might do the principal fittings. It really just depends on the, the scale. And it's beholden on you as a member of the team to be as flexible as as you can be so mm. that you you know so that you're always brought back in for either that job further down the line or or any other job because it's all about being part of the team and communicating and collaborating yeah. do have you got a preference in terms of whether you're working with men's or ladies clothing my experience i've tended to be doing a lot more women's clothing so assistant signing for Jacqueline when she's had more than one assistant designer, it's been a bigger job. I've been doing principal women. Um, so I have a lot more experience doing women's costumes, but I love doing men's costumes and, and actually learning a lot more about men's costumes. But I, I've tended not to be brought in specifically to do men. Mm. And it, it's, you know, costuming aside, it's also about being able to talk to the performer and explain to the performer what it is that you're hoping to achieve and whether it's a whether it's a, a crowd day player or a, you know a, a crowd person or a day player with a speaking part that they all deserve to understand what it is that you're trying to achieve mm. and presumably that comes from is it sort of tone meetings that you all have together at points where everyone has an understanding of the direction that you're going in in terms of color and shapes yeah. i think early on when you do your reference you do very specific kind of mood boards for different scenes and different parts of the the film or the the script and so you know if you're doing a scene at the ritz let's say you'll have your kind of boards of what everyone would have been wearing depending on who they were da, 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 and the date and so the designer would talk through everyone in the team you know all the different boards for all the different scenes and then they then would go on if they're doing crowd fittings to have those boards in the room so that they can refer back to them mm. specifically if there's specific colors that you're using or there's colors you aren't using or or patterns and that's why it is good to have an assistant designer in those in those rooms or involved in kind of getting the stock together because they will have had that bit more time with the designer and kind of have more of a sense of what the overall look you're going for is and yeah, so then as a, the same thing goes with, with principal fittings, you'll always have reference to show and kind of where your ideas have come from and what the journey is. You might put some things on a stand or just to show the actor so that they get an idea in their head before you just start putting clothes on. Yeah, there, there, there'd be no point in presenting a performer with a face accompli. Oh, no. Because you're, you'd immediately come up against a brick wall, understandably, because it's about drawing them into your into the world and you're and, and and that's part of that would have to be part of your process mm. so are, are those pre-meetings you know one one always imagines it, it in in terms of the difference between the world of theater and opera and then the world of film and television you you one imagines that there's never enough time with film and television to actually be able to take people to one side your you know your teams once the decisions have been made in terms of what something's going to look like, which usually starts from the very beginning. What kind of conscious attempt is made to 
as as you progress and as as timing allows to kind of determine that that, that look is stuck to and adhered to is that a difficult challenge because of the nature of filming i mean you're always up against up against the clock um with filming but i i think you tend to plan in advance so that with something like crowd or principal fittings you've got enough time in an ideal world so that the crowd boards would be presented to a designer um, and when i say the crowd boards it would be pictures of of the essays in their finished look and then the mm. designer will go through them and and see them as a group and and make notes and comments that so that changes can be made. The same thing with the principal fitting is at every step of the way, you will go to a director, to the director, to the DP, you know, you'll show them what you're doing and, and where you're going so that everyone's on board. I mean, often you get last minute casting and you know that just is what it is. And But ideally you would never have a costume, an actor going to set in a costume that the director hasn't some idea of what's, what's coming along. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, once you're, once you're filming, it's very hard to change things on the day. Yeah, that's the the worst kind of situation to be in is when you get an actor the, the night before and you have to just hope they like what, you, what you've got and that it makes sense to them and that it fits and then you hope that the director likes it. But ideally, you wouldn't get to that point. Even if, you know, you might not be able to get your, your actor until a few days before, sometimes you might try and find someone, an essay or someone that, that's the same build, the same kind of look so that you'll try the costume in advance that you're not kind of in that position of having nothing on the day. And, it, and it's always acknowledging that, that you, as, as part of that creative process, are beholden to ensure that in order for your process to be as straightforward as possible, everybody is in the loop. And mm. I don't just mean your team, I mean, as you just said, the DOP, the director, producers, so that when it gets to the point, crunch point, in front of the camera where it's literally costing you know pounds by the second yeah. um it it can flow yeah completely i mean i think that's one of the the biggest things about being the designer is that you have to make sure you have to keep having these conversations because the whole thing is a collaboration in a sense and yeah. you need to know that it works with what the production designer is doing that it's a color that the dp likes that it's you know, the director is on, but it's very hard to just think that you can turn up on the day with a costume and that it's all going to work out. There has to be a lot of planning in advance. And is is that something that you were aware of from the get-go in terms of watching the process as a trainee? Could you see clearly how the mindset has to sort of be all over it, but at the same time focus? I, I think as a trainee, I think as you work your way up, you you know, the, the pressure and the responsibility gets bigger and bigger. So as a trainee, and then I went on to be a buyer, you kind of, you, you might get your set of, of things you're doing that day, but, and then you go and do them, but you're not necessarily involved in, in the bigger picture or the, the kind of bigger uh, conversations in a sense. Um, mm-hmm. But as an assistant designer, definitely, you know, in, in a lot of ways, you're you try and take the burden away from the the costume designer to have to filter down the information to your department so an assistant designer kind of their responsibility is often after a fitting to do all the follow-up you know go and talk to the makers talk to the costume houses talk to uh your your team making sure that all the different people who have to work on the costume know what's going on and and have that information passed on so that the costume mm. designer is free to go and uh follow up with the director and all of all of those kind of people because I think 
the one thing I've, I've realized as being the designer is you kind of end up in endless meetings, <laughs> so many meetings, which mm. as an assistant designer, you don't have to go to those things. Your kind of meetings take place within your department. So yeah, that, that's been the change. Again, for, for the sake of our audience, you, you, you were lucky enough to have worked with Jacqueline on Little Women, mm. and um, which, you know, received awards galore, which uh, deservedly. But, and that was an interesting job for you in the sense that you started the prep in the UK and then very quickly shifted to North America. And that was always going to be the case. But there was a point where, what was the balance in terms of the, the ratio of working here prior to going there? Was that just, was that because of uh, casting or was it because of security in terms of knowing your resources here better than you would have perhaps known them in North America for, for a period production? I, I think, to be honest, they agreed to it because they, they wanted Jacqueline to do it. And, you know, she's got a family and wanted to be here. And her view was that you could get the costumes here. And she she wanted to work in the costume houses where she was used to working. So was pushed to get to, have, to be able to prep here and then for us to go over there. And yeah, in, in a way, we got the, the best of both worlds. We were able to do a lot here and there was just there's just a lot more costumes here to choose from. And mm. some of the cast were here and then some of the cast actually came to the UK to be fitted. And a huge amount was made here. But actually, the thing about working in America is it's not like working in London that you, you know, if you're if you're based in London, you've got access to all the costume houses and you can go to them you know, you can be on set in the morning and then go to the costume house in the afternoon. I mean, we were filming in the in Concord, Massachusetts, you know, miles away from even a fabric shop. So you kind of may as well have been prepping in London as prepping in L.A. in terms of the distance. Yeah. And so, yeah, it just for us to be able to to manufacture, I suppose, where you're where you're more familiar with the makers and everything like that. It just, yeah, made such a difference. And then when we got over there we also had an in-house team who were working over there and had a whole american team so it was just jacqueline and i that went from there but we were still had people working in london and working in boston at the same time right so in terms of your comfort zone the as best as you could beforehand you structured it in a way that you were able to get the best of both worlds did that then mean that the schedule of filming was very tight so that you knew well ahead when everything needed to be ready and 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 shipped in and brought to you or or was it a little bit more haphazard than that it's a little bit more haphazard we had well we were we had a lot of late nights on that just kind of finishing things off well as they shifted around the schedule and and i'm trying to remember now really i think the schedule was fairly locked but again the volume of what we had to to do i mean there were just so many Mm. balls and dresses and and because all of the girls were going across two sort of periods in their lives and and we knew that that would be intercut trying to make that work so yeah I mean just the volume of what had to be done for that production was quite huge and then in 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 comparison to the volume was the were you contained within one environment I mean obviously shooting different different locations but in in essence were you able to operate out of one base or were you constantly on the move uh yeah we operated out of one base when we were there lived in one hotel on a roundabout for um three months 
in the middle of winter in a in Billerica, the small town in in Boston. So yeah, that was it was definitely an experience. All of that experience feeds into the into the mm-hmm. desire. It's just the preconcept of, if you like, of of people thinking that a you know a period production. Oh yes, you know, it's just about going out and finding bits of trim here and a dress there and. But the the enormity of of creating a world in in particular in this instance a, a particular time and period that is not often mm-hmm. recreated in essence there isn't that much existing stock that can be drawn out of supply houses and resources and perhaps retrimmed or you know create given something that would create a different impression it it's it would it in essence it would all need to be um you'd you'd need to have to start again yeah i mean i think regardless of where that was filmed we would have had to rely on european costume houses as well as london as well as american because you just to try and as you say find the stock that exists um and then it's not just finding the stock that exists but exists within the palette and the the design for each scene and the brief and yeah the whole thing so it's it's a huge undertaking and you need to know at the beginning i mean it it wasn't my responsibility on that but it is like a a jigsaw puzzle where you're trying to work out your stock based on the schedule to know that you've got enough time to do your fittings to do your turnaround to make sure that like if a certain group of dresses are being worn on one day you know that they're not going to work for another 10 days because you've got to use those same ones again and retrim them and refit them on 10 different people so that they can work again the following week and that's a whole maths problem because if the if the schedule suddenly changes and those two filming days are next to each other then you haven't got enough outfits mm. even with your evening wear for men you know you need to make sure you've got enough to cover yourself for the various different scenes that are going to appear and where they appear in the in the schedule and if those costumes just don't exist then you've got a real problem not that this is your job title but the logistics of of the subsequent cleaning and processing of those items in order for them to then be ready mm. for that next block of shooting in itself is a is a logistical nightmare because you're dependent upon the relationship that you have with your mm. supervisor and their team and i i i i'm assuming that through the teams of people that you've worked with i.e. lindy and guy and jacqueline that knowing that um no, me knowing that they have very good relationships with their supervisors i'm presuming that that's something that's been drummed into you and you understand as being absolutely vital in terms of the smooth running of your process. Completely. I mean, I've always understood how quite how important it is for a supervisor, but you kind of realise when you start to get involved with things like the logistics, which I had to do because of us being based in London and then having to go over there, you realise just how much of a, a complex problem it is, like that to do with the scheduling, to do, just in terms of deliveries and making sure things turn up on time, everything is so time sensitive that you really have to be on it and you can't forget something because that can have a huge implication. And as a designer and and working on smaller projects myself, I'm I'm having to do a lot more of that. And you just realize that actually you need to be on top of all of those things. You need to be on top of when you're going to do your pickups, when you're going to do your returns, when, how much time between to have things cleaned the budget implications mm. of all of those things because you know just one decision can turn you you know it can 
upset your budget. So yeah, I mean, having a, a great supervisor is just makes everything so much easier. In terms of finding that supervisor, it's about, I suppose, ultimately you asking the right questions at that point of interview in order to assess whether that supervisor is going to be the best person for your job. Because obviously different supervisors have, have got different skill sets that they can apply, whether it could be manufacturing in terms of their interest as well as their ability, or whether it is somebody that is happy to sit behind a computer at a desk and pump away at diaries and calendars and, you know, making inordinate amounts of phone calls and liaising with production managers and producers. Yeah, I think it depends on the on the type of job. And often certain supervisors are drawn to certain jobs as well because they might have done quite a few jobs like you've just described, which when it's the bigger jobs, they're involved with that side of it, which is much more kind of the running and the day-to-day and, and the budget. And sometimes they love to go and do a small job because it means they're they're involved with the costumes again and they're kind of having to do a lot more of the hands-on things and they're back on the costume truck Mm. but really i think for a supervisor in particular that the nature of the job kind of dictates what they end up doing every day like that again they end up in lots and lots of meetings and logistical meetings and and i think you know good producers really know the value of a good supervisor because they can be reassured that there are going to be costumes on the day and then things that are going to run smoothly and that's a a big responsibility for a supervisor. Oh, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, I'm, I'm, and I find that as the years go on and I see more and more of, of people's working practice, you realise that the, uh, a costume supervisor can, can actually make or break um, mm. the process of a production and how it, and, and how it proceeds. And I, it's been so interesting um, going through this series of chats with everyone in terms of the, the evaluation that people have for their own role as well as the role of the people that are around them. And um, I, I, I'm, I think that's, it's very encouraging to know that, that there are so many different, if you like, roles that can be filled. And then even within those roles, the, the, the different levels of, of, of um, mm-hmm. application and and if you like job requirements but you know it, it it's been interesting chatting with you about about all of this but there is there is something that I wanted to touch on that I think in terms of where we're all going and how how, how we're heading in heading towards a direction globally in terms of sustainability and and best and what what's considered to be best practice i i've one of the key things that i've always been interested and curious about with you Sinead, is the is your belief in sustainability within the costume department in terms of mm. the function and how it and how we operate as practitioners with you know the world and and on a global level where we're heading uh, in terms of well resources and trying to and trying to protect the environment yeah i mean for me it's it's something that i started to think about probably probably almost 10 years ago when i started working in this industry was just realizing the volume of what we produce and the kind of social responsibility we have of of thinking about what we produce and 
more and more, I mean, particularly even at the moment when you see what's happened in the last few months to our industry and realizing that there is no built in resilience to, to look after us, we kind of are, I suppose, a production company's responsibility to us in a lot of ways starts with, you know, a script and it ends with the premiere and what kind of happens after that you know, it's not necessarily being thought about because we're all freelance and we move from one short-term job to another short-term job and and there's never enough time and there's never enough money and and the main aim is to produce a film or a television program or a theatre production that looks beautiful and is incredible and, you know, is meaningful in that sense. But when I think about our industry and where we're going to be in, in 10, 15, 20 years, I just don't know what we're doing, I suppose, to, to make sure that our industry is catching up with the world around it and it is viable, can exist in in that time. And I think to myself that, oh, you know, 2050, if I'm lucky, I'll be able to retire around 2050. And that's about the time when uh, all the climate change people are saying, you know, will have will have gone too far at that point. And, and all of the scientists are saying to us, we need to drastically reduce our impact, our carbon footprint uh, by 2030 or mm. um, or it'll be too late. Essentially, that is the time we've got to reduce our impact by 45 percent. And since I've started in the industry, all I've seen is the amount we consume. And as costume designers in particular, we are massive, massive consumers. And that consumption has just increased. And that's because in the wider society with fast fashion and textile production and kind of the the ease and convenience of, of the way we now shop, people are shopping more and more. But we just don't stop and think. And in a way, you know, the older generation of designers I talk to, they always say, well, it never used to be like this. We never used to, you know, buy this much and we never used to waste this much and and then I see the trainees and juniors that I work with that come in and they're all going well why is it like this you know why are we wasting so much and, and I mm. feel like it's up to us that are kind of in between to sort of say actually let's stop and think about what we're doing and I mean just from a social point of view for me it's never really sat right that you know where where we manufacture kind of in in the developing world and and there's people who make clothing for a living just like the rest of us but they're working in awful conditions and you know we then go to the high stream we go to places like Primark and think it's okay to buy something that's you know two pounds but there's like 10 people who have to get paid and a profit margin and all of those things. It's also determined by how the criteria of of actually physically shooting and creating a production mm. has shifted in terms of timing and digitization availability of of of, yeah. of clothing at a price in order to fit into the criteria of a budget and not to dismiss the points that you're trying to make but you know you've got a generation of practitioners who have said it never used to be like this what what's happened and what's happened is that is is actually on a global scale the world has shifted from something that would have taken you know, an amount of time to create now has to be done in half that time for half that cost. That is true. But I think our impact as consumers, I think it's across the board, the film industry needs to change. And the film industry is highly unregulated in a sense. There's lots of problems with the industry as a whole. But one of them is that it's it's not regulated. It's short term contracts. And that needs to change in a sense. But the only people who can change it are those of us working within it. Yes. And we can shift the culture and we can change the culture. And 
often we say things like, oh, this is just the way we do it because this is the way it's been, you know, it's always been done and there's there's not enough time and there's not enough money and everything. And I completely appreciate that. I know what it's like when you get casting the day before and you've just got to, to go and find something for someone to wear. But I also think like, the, so I created something called the costume directory, which the aim of it was just sharing the information that I had and giving people access to to suppliers that are doing trying to do the right thing and, and giving people access to information about different ways of sourcing and looking at, at the textiles we're using and looking at mm. where things are coming from and looking at the certifications that you should look for to make sure that you know the people who are who are manufacturing these textiles are paid a living wage or also just showing people how easy it is now to shop secondhand i mean one thing we do which is amazing is we use costume houses and we hire clothing rather than manufacturing it from new. And that's amazing because on one hand, costume designers really value things that are a hundred years old and we, we reuse clothing over and over again. And that's brilliant, but that doesn't happen on a lot of films and a lot of the big blockbuster films in particular, where they have a lot of money, their budgets are huge. And so they're a, capacity to make a difference is also huge so they can look at you know clothing and and i think often people get fixated on on certain aspects of like like air travel for example but the fashion and textiles industry is eight percent of global emissions the airline industry is two percent and yet even as the film industry tries Mm -hmm. to move to a there is the bfi have recently produced a study and they're trying to look at ways to get the film industry to move to a net zero carbon emissions which is you know very admirable but actually the reality is very few people think about how our department works and in all their analysis of the film industry as a whole and its carbon impact costume isn't doesn't even figure so they it's just not even calculated no one knows what our impact is and when you look at the impact of the fashion and textiles industry and then you think about our manu what we manufacture and our output actually our impact is huge and I'm not saying it's going to change overnight and I'm in no way an expert on sustainability or, you know, I'm a filmmaker, but I think you you have to to look at kind of the people working in our industry and say, what can we do and where do we want to be? And if we want to go and say we're going to be net zero carbon emissions by 2030, which is kind of where we need to be, how are we going to get there? What are we going to do to get mm. there? And And the reality is we can either do nothing and then just get to a point where our industry is considered unsustainable or we have to modernize overnight or we can try and look at changing the culture we can set ourselves targets we can look at the things that we we actively do and see if there's ways that we can change them i mean we can just even looking at our mileage looking at our waste not thinking of things just changing the culture of how we think about clothing to value it again so that if we're buying stuff from the high street it doesn't matter if it's cheap if we're not going to use it let's return it even when you've got high profile actors and you're buying them new tracksuits, new trainers, so much underwear that doesn't get used or returned. And then at the end, you're just left with this mountain of clothing like that clothing. It doesn't matter if you give it to a charity shop at the end. It's it's still adding to the kind of consumption, the mass consumption that is a big problem in our society. And I think I'm not saying I have the answers in any way, shape or form. I just think actually we need to start personally taking responsibility for the future of our industry because no one else is. And unless we start thinking about it and start talking about it and start thinking of ways that actually we can 
make changes and and there's lots of ways that we can make really simple changes that don't that aren't a hassle or that won't make a difference to our creative output yeah beholden on us to to take that initiative and Mm. to understand it and to educate our teams accordingly i'm going to be quite contentious here but the it's it's also about shifting what the perception of Mm. value is and you you touched on the point that the if you like the costume houses and supply houses as as resources exist Mm -hmm. as businesses but primarily um they exist in a situation where they benefit everybody and what seems to have also changed in in terms of the argument that we're having uh, about trying to control this 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 consumption is that at the top of the tree, uh, the studios consider that the costumes that they create, produce, purchase, acquire, however they do it, is the, the perception is that these, these, these clothes are considered mm. assets after they've been used. And it's an interesting dynamic that we're constantly faced with as suppliers that clothing that would come in come back into this business and subsequently be available for you know multiple use is prevented from coming back in that way without some kind of exorbitant charge attached to it an overinflated charge because of the perception that this is clothing that was used in this production therefore it has a value that is beyond its retail value and beyond its commercial value as an item. And I think that that's, I think that should shift in terms of clothing that you're saying is purchased and found at great expense and use of resources and basically Mm. sits in boxes in some storage somewhere. never to see the light of day again when it could be out there regenerating itself and being used in such a in such a variety of different ways I think ways. that's the thing I think it's just looking at you know not just the the sort of financial cost of something but the actual carbon cost of something and I think actually we'll have to get to a point yeah. where that is rationed to a certain degree but we're not going to get there anytime soon if no one's actually acknowledging the problem that exists maybe productions need to bring in a specific maybe there's a job title maybe there's a role for somebody specifically unless unless there already is and I'm I'm not aware of it but I'm always intrigued by the idea that perhaps somebody like like there is in in theory going to be somebody that is brought in as if you like a, a covid mm. specialist in terms of best practice maybe there needs to be somebody that is brought into to be the sustainability person. Well, they often have, on, on certain jobs, they often have what they call it like a sustainability runner who do a great job, but they're they're looking at the overall things that the film industry in general looks at in terms of sustainability, which is catering, which is very important, um, and recycling. But the the bigger kind of thing in terms of the materials that are bought and the energy usage and all of those things kind of that don't happen on the actual set floor... I think are largely overlooked at the moment. And that is to do with, there are some great organizations. I work closely with them. BAFTA have an affiliate called Albert who look at sustainability, but they have difficulties kind of actually just getting access, you know, getting information from the studios, 
getting in there. And so what actually, I recently joined a group called Cut It, which is about basically filmmakers for the climate crisis. And what's brilliant is it's a group of not just costume designers, but it's cinematographers, gaffers, production designers, actors. So it's all people from across the field coming Mm. together saying, you know, we're not experts, but we know something needs to change in our industry. And we're looking at different ways. And and a few Mm. of the things that we're actually doing from a costume point of view is one, getting really targeted education for teams. So like myself included, what we were saying at the beginning of a job that would be really helpful is to have training and and not just kind of the same training you get for like health and safety that, that people kind of do and fill out a form and say they've done it. But that's actually really practical and structured by someone who understands the industry, who understands our de- how our department works, who understands the complex nature of why you have to get things in a hurry or the kind of fabrics you have to use or the different things, but just to give people a broader understanding of actually the impact we have on a daily basis and where we have opportunities to make a change and getting a whole team involved so it's not just about the hod saying what they can do it's like i think we can learn a huge Mm. amount from our our juniors and trainees that come in they know far more about sustainability than we do they know a lot more about things like circular design and different ways of doing things and and just shifting the, the culture and the way we think i think that's a big thing we can do and so we're pushing for that at the moment. And the other thing is trying to to get us to self-audit in a way. So Albert, we're working together to come up with a calculator so that actually buyers can track their mileage. We can track what we're buying. We can track what we're, what fabrics we're using. And then they will analyze it and say, actually, you know, this is your overall impact and this is where you could make significant changes. Because I think no one wants to be pestered while they're at work and told, oh, you know, you should you're using the wrong kind of plastic bottle or you're using the wrong kind of spoon. You know, we're all under such pressure all the time that sometimes we get bogged down with focusing on things like that are are in front of us, like plastic bags or plastic bottles or, you know, the recycling. But actually there's bigger issues like our energy use, uh, the way the diesel generators we use to kind of, you know, have our marquees going. And then the big thing is, the the resources that go into manufacturing textiles and so if we can source a lot more secondhand if we can hire a lot more that will make a massive difference in terms of the overall impact and i think that's the way we have to move now and and the mindset is changing because people are in this moment of lockdown thinking a bit more long term and thinking a bit more about the future and actually where the industry is going and, and where it needs to be and i think collectively we just need to have these discussions because often there's lots of people doing really brilliant things but doing them in isolation because we don't kind of have one fixed infrastructure that we use and we keep returning to. So each time you start a job, it's like Groundhog Day. You're starting from scratch. You're starting a new office. They're kidding yeah. out a new kitchen for you. They're bringing in desks. You're setting up rails, you know, everything. And then you get to the end and you're left with all this stuff and you're wondering where to go. And, and this happens constantly. And so lots of people are trying to do things. But now we're just trying to, to streamline that and get lots of people doing things together so that we can kind of move forward and try and think differently. Well, I, I take my hat off to you. I think it's a, it's an amazing initiative. I, I've, I've been watching it. I, I know the I know your uh, compendium that you put together for uh, resources. And I well, what we'll do actually is put the details of the website and the organization you know on the on the front page of our podcast 
because I think it, you know, absolutely deserves it, and and it's a very important aspect of of, of our way forward. Is is the I've noticed on a few of the BBC closing credits that they they detail that there are mm. Albert sustainable production is is that in direct connection with this initiative yeah so albert are that body that's um they're funded by a lot of the tv broadcasters so bbc bafta bfi and they give so productions have to meet certain criteria in order to to get that accreditation right and again i've worked very closely with them and they've been very supportive but it's only recently that we've discovered that actually cost costume doesn't even figure so that's something that that we're working together to try and change because I think, you know, again, unless you work in our industry, you really don't know what happens behind the scenes. And sometimes mm-hmm. people fail to think where that army have come from that are on set suddenly. They just haven't really yeah. thought about the journey or the breakdown process or the washing and drying or all of those factors that are that make a difference. That have become so much part of the everyday. Mm-hmm. So, Sinead, so, just to wrap up our lovely little uh, chat here, what would you say going forward is there a single piece of advice that you'd offer to somebody wanting to enter our industry as a designer um i think probably what i said earlier on in, which is about just working hard i mean it sounds like a cliche but you know that that saying that hard work beats talent if talent doesn't work hard i think i say that all the time because i just think actually if you if you're getting into this industry and you work really hard people will see that and you'll be such a valuable valuable addition to any team if you're willing to work hard so yeah that'll be my one piece of advice well that's an invaluable piece of advice and i really appreciate you giving us the time especially as you're in the midst of a startup again and look forward to seeing you over the next couple of weeks and um yeah no shanae thank you very very much thank you very much jonathan it's been lovely that was Jonathan's chat with Sinead, a fascinating conversation, especially near the tail end of it as well with the reusable and the recyclable and the environmental side of things. And I know I mentioned at the end of last week's interview, it's something, it's an interesting conversation to have with you, Jonathan, because it's sort of how you work in the ma- the making departments, especially with things like fur and things like that. But you do reuse as much as you possibly can rather than go out and buy if um, only if you have to is that right yes we do we try and we tr- we try and regenerate we try and renovate we try and utilize fabric that may be frayed in one section that you know somebody would deem as disposable yeah. um we don't you know that that's if you like that's the motto of a costume house it doesn't matter whether it's us cosprop whoever the idea is is that you're only as good as your resource and nothing's and beyond redemption. Nothing's beyond redemption, and also, you know, that costuming, the, the the in the in its purest sense, is is using, you know, existing if, thing. Yeah. If you go yeah. back to the Roger Tonks yep. school, school of costuming, where yep. one minute you're turning a, you know, a mess jacket into a uh, an officer's naval yeah. Yeah. tropical well, dress, to then it becomes a flunky, to then it becomes a, you know, it's yeah. changing yeah. buttons and. Yeah, all those Chelsea pensioner red coats that were turned into tailcoats and, and, and <laughs> things. It, it's, it's true. And, and of course, you know, I've had, people say, oh, do you ever throw things away? Well, of course, we do occasionally. But, you know, even the most tatty 
garment can go into the tramp section or, or what's that? Is it, is, I can't remember whether they call it the prostitutes or the whores section now, but it's one of those, isn't it? Sort of ladies of the, the, night. Ladies of the night section where it's sort of <laughs> faded finery and, and, and things that are, that are sort of worn there. And, and actually those costumes are as valuable as any other costume, if not more so, because they're already broken down and aged. I, oh. I love the way that when, when somebody who doesn't know asks the question, so do I pay less? Yeah. <laughs> yeah taking it's... something that's, that's essentially ripped to shreds. <laughs> or do I, t do I pay less for a kid's costume because it's smaller than smaller. an adult's costume? I know, I know, that cropped up the other day with me. I go, well, how many layers is it? Well, it's the same layers. <laughs> oh, okay, then fine. So it's just a miniature adult, really, then, isn't it? Speaking as a miniature adult. Um, <laughs> and a light bulb goes on over their head. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, I, I think you made a very, very pertinent point, Jonathan. And it's something I've never understood how that on a film or a TV production, they can spend thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds recreating, say, a medieval um, banqueting hall. And the day they finish wrapping it, it's scrapped and it's in a skip. But the costumes that they've spent thousands creating for that banqueting hall are suddenly assets and have a huge value um, and this is a point that you make you make in the interview so mm -hmm. you know all, all of the all of the all of the stuff the scenery construction stuff is just got rid of but somehow production seem to think that there's another mm -hmm. value to this and of course it's grossly unfair if you're mm -hmm. prepared to spend the money making those costumes for the production that's what you spent the money on yes yeah, why, why, why does it then have to become tangibly something else? Yeah, and I feel very, very strongly, as I know we, we all do, that you know we, we as a costume house, not just us, every costume house, is only as good as its stock, and its stock is only, only re-energised and revitalised by new things coming in. And, and what does it gain a production yeah. company to keep a load of costumes that they've made for Troy or one of those big sword and sandals things for years in skips and not let other people have access to them and not have them reused again. And it comes back to this thing about repurposing things, doesn't it? Yeah. Listening to everything Sinead was saying on this side of stuff, and I think look, the, 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 one of the biggest things I took away from it is when she says, I'm not an expert, but I'm a film person, but she has an opinion on it and she has a view on it and she feels passionate about it. And there are enough people who should have the same feel and passion about it because it's looking at the much bigger picture, which is yeah. so much harder to do in the film industry because all you're concentrating on is where's the next job yeah. and making this job perfect. So to actually have someone who's championing this and admits it's not her forte, but she is pushing it as hard as she can and trying to make such a change is a fast is, is, is fantastic no we have had productions who've said look you know we're not expecting to get any money for this stock we'd rather you had it but can you maybe look at the next time around and yeah. do us some sort of deal on 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 the next lot of hires you know which is a far more healthy and positive attitude than going we want fifty thousand pounds for this show please and um... that ascribes to Sinead's point of view in yeah. terms of of how the channels of communication should always be open and dialogue between yeah. vendor, supplier, uh, buyer, you know, need to flow. And, and mm. the problem is, is as we have seen in the current situation that we're all in, there was, if you like, a, a lull in the hyperactivity that goes with production making, whether it's film, television, even theatre, and where, where people were coming to the table to talk and discuss issues 
uh, albeit mostly related to COVID situation. But, yeah. but along with that comes the, the bigger talk about, you know, what do we do going forward in terms of our working practice? And um, notice I didn't say practitioners. <laughs> apparently, apparently there's a bet out there <laughs> oh, amongst it? a regular audience of, of, of about the number of times that I say practitioner. There is another one about the number of times I say really, is there? That was just in City Rats. Really? <laughs> really? Re- I really, 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 really like. The next conversation we're releasing is my conversation with Nat Turner. Nat is uh, just starting onto his design career now. He has been an assistant, he has been a standby, and he has worked in the costume department. For us. For us, he started off with us. And similarly to Sinead, he also, he worked with Lindy Hemming. Actually, he worked with Lindy for quite a long time, actually. So I sat down and talked with Nat about his career and... Uh, it was a really nice chat, and it's someone who cares passionately about what he does, and I'm looking forward to releasing it. Mm. And here is a small excerpt from my conversation with Nat Turner. Paddington's like the most beautiful film ever made, and it's just joy. The positivity that those films sort of spread, I think, was was one of is one of the most valuable things I've been involved with. And in terms of the creative process, it's just genius because it's it's caricature, but it isn't. They're so colourful, those films, that they're quite complicated in terms of trying to figure out, again, timelines of characters. Because, for instance, on the first film, we were kind of using red as a signifier for, for people's happiness and stuff, being being that it is the same colour as Paddington's hat. And But at certain points, Paul would, would, would say, oh, I want them to wear this red in this scene. And we'd, we'd be like, but... But that other person's wearing that red, and you you know you just get a whole sea of red everywhere. So it was it was it was very interesting in terms of trying to um to deal with the sheer amount of colour that Paul wanted to put in there. And obviously the the, the sets and the production design are unbelievable as well. And um, we were all sort of going down the same thing. But it was it was worrying to us that we we thought it was I think Lindy thought as well. She thought it was just going to look like a look like madness because it, it seemed like we were throwing everything at it which we were, but it kind of works. It's the kind of the aesthetic of the film. 